And this morning, uh, we are going to be looking at Psalm 73. Uh, I thought it would, would be appropriate, given the circumstances, things we are dealing with in our time. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Let's hear the word of the Lord. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs until death. Are there no pangs in their death? You can translate it that way as well. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And they are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven. And their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of my pe- of your children. But when I thought on to understand this, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. I ask you to pray for me as I preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word. Let's pray. My Father would praise and pray, O Lord, please help us. Now be with me as I preach this text. Be with your people as they sit under the proclamation of your word. And that we would learn things. And the things that we learn would be beneficial to us as far as our understanding of your justice and greatness. As far as our own sanctification. We do pray for your grace and help, O God. Be with me, I pray, O Lord, that the things that I've written down, the things that I preach would come forth with unction and clarity. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 73, I think many of us have wondered why it is that God blesses the wicked. And so often those who are faithful seem to be bypassed by those blessings. In a word, Christians. As you contemplate this fact, as we try to wonder why it is that so often uh, believers are uh, in pain and believers are in uh, torment and believers uh, have marital problems, financial problems, all of these things that are afflictions to the Christian. And yet those who are extremely wealthy, it seems that they have no troubles at all. Take, for example, George Soros. I don't know how much he's worth. I have no earthly idea, but I do know that he gave $36 million to Open Society Foundation. He is not a Christian. He is not a friend to the church. As a matter of fact, most of the things he tries to accomplish are contrary to the gospel, contrary to the church. 
and his efforts in evangelism and his efforts in seeking to be salt and light in the world. And so we wonder, why is it that this man, he's a bad man, he's a very bad man. Why it is that he is so blessed? Because he is. In the things of this world, he's very blessed. Or again, some of you may take offense to this. I hope you don't. But if you do, I'm going to say it anyway because I think it needs to be said. The largest church in America is located here in Houston, Texas. The speaker that's there, he's not a preacher, he's a speaker that's there, stands in the pulpit Sunday after Sunday. I have never, ever heard him preach the gospel. I have never, ever heard him confront people about their sin and the need for repentance. I'd love to see Joey Pipe over there for one time. See what happens. I listened to him one time on the radio. It makes you feel good inside. It makes you feel wonderful. But to feel wonderful without the gospel, to feel wonderful without Christ, is a false feeling. Because apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no reason to think that life is good. He said this morning, so I want you to know this morning, just do good. For your own sake, do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're, doing, you're, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen. That's heresy. It bothers me. And it's starting to bother me more and more that we put up the junk like this and don't say anything. Next time you meet somebody that goes to... The oasis of love, as it used to be called. His daddy preached the gospel. Ask them, can you explain to me the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? Explain it to me. And see what they say. And the tragedy of it is, there are thousands of people there who are merrily going down the river of life, confidence they're going to heaven, with no clue as to their need for Jesus. A terrible, terrible surprise will be had by those who are there that do not know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. This past Friday, I think it was, there was a, a series put out by the BBC called Son of God. And uh, I spent 30 minutes trying to find it. All I could get were these ads to buy the DVDs. I didn't want to buy anything. just wanted to see the things that I had read about. One about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and one about King David. So Jess came in the office, talked to me, and he went back two minutes later. He called me. Both of them are on his computer. Can't figure that out. So we watched Sodom and Gomorrah, the way they played that out. The two angels came, and they were crying for help, and one of them was bleeding. And so they went to the house of Lot for safety. Now, Jess said he thought that was supposed to be a picture of a test for Lot. Maybe it was, but it ain't in the Bible. Not in the Bible anywhere. And they, they, they blinded the people. They have blood coming out of their eyes, you know. Then they come out of the house, and these two angels, one is Asian angel, the other is from Africa, uh, pulls out these swords and starts cutting people all to pieces. And he does these flips, you know, as he's, like they do in the kung fu movies. And he's, he's just stabbing people, killing people. Joel Osteen served as a counselor and advisor on that film. So did Rick Warren, which kind of surprised me. I heard him speak one time in Chicago. I was at a church growth uh, seminar that I was sent to. And he's he got a big conversation. And I, I, I like him. I think he's a good guy. 
But he said when he started his ministry, he changed the wording of the Ten Commandments to make them positive. I don't think we want to do that. The reason they're negative is because those are the things we tend to do. They were not supposed to do. That's exactly why they're in the negative. Now, on the other side of that, there's a positive thing, but you don't change the wording of the Scriptures so as to fit somehow to make people feel more comfortable about that. But again, I, I respect him, but he also, on that film, and I, I, I couldn't believe uh, when we watched that, uh, that they had so misrepresented the Scriptures in those two things. David, King David, Nathan's talking to him, and um, Nathan says, the child... And again, I think you've heard me say before that I think the child was not an infant. I think it had been at least one year old or so, maybe six months, long enough for David to have fallen in love with this baby. And Nathan tells him, the child's going to die. You know, you, you had an affair with this woman. You had her husband murdered, and God's judging you. The child's going to die. In the film, David says, we'll see about that. That ain't in the Bible either. The whole point of Nathan going to David is his conviction of his own sin and the humility he shows by going to God and pleading with God for the life of the child and by coming to repentance for what he had done. He had hardened his heart against the Lord for I don't know how long, but he had hardened it. A man after God's own heart, a man who wrote the scriptures, had hardened his heart against the Lord. And it was not until Nathan came to him and David did not say, we'll see about that. He was broken. He was a broken man. And he went before the Lord in humility and shame. Does God's providence sometimes leave you scratching your head as to why things work out the way that they do? And we must admit, if we're honest, sometimes his providence is most perplexing. We don't quite understand why it is. That he's doing some of the things he does. That's the situation with Asa in Psalm 73. He's observing life. He's observing those who are ungodly and how God has blessed them. He looks at his own life and sees he's been quite faithful to God. and He's suffering. He's perplexed by it. And so this is the background behind this psalm. We'll see this this morning that uh, we can be confident and that God is righteous in all of his dealings, and we will ultimately see it on the day of judgment. We trust him now. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, said this, and I think I've quoted this to you before, that at the uh, Yorkshire station, you can stand out on the platform, you can see one train coming in. But if you go up to the switch room, where the, you, know, you can see all these lights and all these trains all over the place, and you can get, get the big picture. What we have to do as we live our lives is contain and cling to the big picture. That there is a final day and God is going to reveal his justice. Well, three things this morning. Uh, God, God providentially rules over all things in creation. And the second thing is God providentially blesses the life of the wicked and God providentially will judge the world. In the first place, then, God rules providentially over all things in creation. A little catechism question. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. And so in Ephesians 1, 7 through 12, in him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan and the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And so the teaching here is God is sovereign over everything, all things. There is nothing that happens that God is not sovereign over that event that takes place. You can see then the perplexity of the psalmist here. As he sees these things going on, and he doesn't understand why it is that God is doing what he's doing. As R.L. Dabney said, he bears a perpetual active relation to his creation. R.L. Dabney was a Southern Presbyterian, ended up finally in Austin, started a seminary up in Austin. He bears a perpetual activity, active relation to his creation. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So he is in the, on the throne. He is controlling all things when good things happen to us. He's in control. He is on the throne. He is controlling all things when unpleasant things happen to us. He's still in control. And we know from Scripture, and we know from looking at the cross of Calvary, God is not me. He doesn't have a blind eye to our needs. He knows what we need. He knows when we're hurting, and it is that he doesn't afflict us lightly. He does so, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that we may uh, grow in grace, that we may be holy as he is holy. Or that, a henna clause, we may share in his holiness. That's why we go through trials. So God... Never has, nor will he ever, acquiesce his rule over the creation, over the universe. And no one can make him do so. No event can outmaneuver his plans. No event can happen that somehow, in some way, uh, is twist God's arm behind his back so that he says, Uncle, that is not our God. So the absolute supreme being who rules over the universe, controlling all things, all things, is our God of Scripture. The Milky Way, our galaxy, our home, billions of stars in it, billions of stars in it. I was disappointed that each time we tried to go out to the observatory, it ended up getting cloudy. We're going to try it again. We will be successful because it's so much fun to go out there. Uh, Andromeda Galaxy, which is the closest galaxy to us, is 2.54 million light years away. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. You can, I can't do the math. You can do the math. Let me know how many miles that is. 2.54 million light years away. The heavens do indeed declare the glory of God. They show his handiwork. It does us good, I think, to reflect upon the vastness of the universe as far as we can tell and recognize the power and the majesty of our God that is displayed in that. So it is the rule of God that is the core, that's at the core of Asaph's consternation. 
from Hamlet's soliloquy. Uh, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take up arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing them end them, to die to sleep no more, and by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ah, there's the rub. For in the sleep of death, who knows what dreams may come. There's the rub is an English idiom. Don't you love the way this guy wrote? He was some kind of writer. There's the rub. And what it means is, this is the main problem. This is the difficulty. This is the perplexity that I'm dealing with. There's the rub. Well, the rub here in the case of Asaph is this. Why is it that God blesses the wealthy and they prosper and I do not? And so he would say the slings and arrows of of outrageous fortune, the sea of troubles, which the wicked seem to escape. When you look at the world right now, it often looks as if God's not at the hell. The way things are going in our country, the way things are going abroad, it often looks as if God is not in control, but he is. He is totally and completely in control of all things that happen. And he does not in any way approve of lawlessness. So notwithstanding God's sovereignty, we need to understand this as well, that we are free agents and we do what we want to do. God does not tempt us to sin. When the fall took place uh, and recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, God was not pacing back and forth, hoping against hope that just somehow and in some way they would not eat the forbidden fruit and sin. But they just somehow got away with it. And God was so upset, so unhappy. That's not the case. The fall was a decree of God. And I think if we ever want to come to try to understand why the fall took place, in the book of Romans it says this, He has shut all under condemnation that He might show mercy. That He might show mercy. And so there is an aspect of God's character as being that we would not have known except for our sin. That is His grace. But we are sinful creatures and that we do not deserve His compassion and kindness is evident. Yet He gives that to us. He grants grace to us and kindness to us. We don't deserve it, but He gives it to us. Had it not been for the fall, we would not have been sinners. We would not have seen that aspect of God's greatness, His tenderness, His grace, His mercy. And so He decreed that all men would be under condemnation, that He might show mercy to all according to what was written for us in the book of Romans. Acts chapter 2, 23, this is again demonstrating the, um, the uh, sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Uh, in this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, they're both there. They're both clearly there. Jesus was delivered up according to chance. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. So the crucifixion was not a mistake. 
It was planned before time, if you will, that Christ would come and Christ would die on the cross of Calvary. It was planned before all ages according to the good pleasure of God. You remember what it says in Colossians? That all things might be uh, for him and through him. The Lord Jesus Christ, they created for him and through him. That he might have preeminence in all things. So here we recognize and learn again from the scriptures that we are responsible for the things that we do. Because where is the blame placed in this verse? It's not placed upon God. Although it was his plan. It's placed upon those who killed him. You, the Jews, with the help of wicked men, the Romans, put him to death. Can you imagine those who were there listening to Peter? They were there when Christ was crucified. They saw Jesus walking through the streets. So I'm being beaten. So I'm after the soldiers had beat him with rods, after they had stuffed that crown of thorns upon after he'd been whipped all those times, they see Jesus coming past them, and perhaps they're sneering at him. Perhaps they're saying he's getting what he deserves. This man's a heretic. He's getting what he deserves. Then they hear Peter preaching. According to God's definite plan and purpose, he was delivered up. You remember in, uh, in the book of in, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the Pentateuch, where uh, they make this bronze serpent because um, uh, the snakes are coming into the camp and biting people, and they're dying. They're fiery serpents, they're called. And so if you looked in faith upon the serpent that was up on the pole, you lived. That's a picture of Christ. And Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted up, I must be lifted up as well. What happened, of course, given the human nature, they finally started worshiping the thing and had to destroy it. So our Lord Jesus Christ was delivered up according to the plan of God. But the guilt and responsibility was upon those who did it. So as Dr. Sanderson used to say in class, you can write on the board 100% God, draw a line, 100% man. God's 100% sovereign over all things. We are responsible. Let no one say when they are tempted, they are being tempted by God, because God tempts no one. And he is not pleased that we should sin against him. Professor Dabney, again, if I may refer to um, the Southern Presbyterian. You can't go wrong when you refer to the Southern Presbyterians, by the way. Dabney said that uh, we don't have free will. Our will is bound by sin. We are free agents, that we do what we choose to do. And that's quite true. He says conscience itself tells us that we are free agents. Because when we get an afflicted conscience, because we've done something that we know is wrong, uh, we don't blame God for that. Uh, It is a burden that is placed upon us because we know that we've done something that displeases God. And by the grace of God, his spirit works and brings us under a sense of condemnation and guilt. Dabney says, that proves you're responsible for the things that you do. That you have your own personal guilt before the Lord in desperate need of his grace. Packer said in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, that this business of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is an antinomy. It seems to be terribly inconsistent, contradictory. What Packer says is, we don't have enough knowledge to understand it. We can't put it together. 
But the Bible teaches clearly both things. That God is sovereign over all of life, and we are totally and completely responsible for everything that we do. And this great God of ours, by his providence, blesses the life of the wicked. He blesses them. Uh, I'd love to know how much George Morris is worth, but all that he has has come to him by God's providence. God worked. No, he would never say that. We can pray for his conversion. What a great thing if he came to faith in Christ and came here to worship with us. He's 91 years old, by the way. So we could pray for his conversion. And we pray for God to stop whatever efforts are being made to come against the church, to come against God's people. So again, the writer of the psalm begins with a statement of absolute truth. Surely God is good to Israel, to such as a pure in heart. It's a fact. He states that as this is the... Uh, the uh, presupposition uh, to uh, to the, living the Christian life. God is good to those who love him. He always is good. But then he says, as for me, my feet almost slipped because I was envious of the arrogant. The very word he uses first to describe them should have been enough so that he would not want to be like them. It says in the scriptures, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Not many arrogant men are going to come on their knees before God. Not many proud people are going to come on their knees before God. It is the humble that would come before him. So God is good to those who are his. We know that. Um, he writes this with strong conviction as the beginning of Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. In this great expression of God's love in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Listen to it. This is, a prayer. This is the second prayer that Paul prays in the book of Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his grace, riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. No matter what we are dealing with, no matter how we may be afraid of what's going on in the world, we can know the depth and the riches of the love of God to us in Christ Jesus. We have that, you see. We have peace. Be anxious in nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. I'll let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving, that you may have the peace that passes all understanding. We can do that when we understand aright how much God loves us. And we know that because of Jesus, the one he gave, his son, to die for us on the cross of Calvary. That expresses great love. If you ever doubt God's love because you have a difficult providence, I tell you, um, I love Charlie Chase. Admire Charlie Chase. He's someone I've known since, I don't know, I can't remember not knowing him really. uh, College, yeah, college, I think. He's a minister. He's written some books. Charlie lost 
of grandson. The child was born with all kinds of difficulties, blood on the brain, all sorts of things. Didn't live very long. I went to the funeral. It's up in Dallas. I think it was Dallas. Charlie preached the funeral. If that and the way he preached demonstrates so clearly he understood God's goodness. He understood God's love and God's mercy. And he said this as his preaching. We have not been crying. We have been sobbing. Yet in the midst of those tears, you see, he looked beyond what was seen here and now to the other side, to glory where Christ dwells and the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And because of that, he was able to preach with great passion and authority the goodness and kindness of God. When we face things that are unpleasant, let us go again to look at the risen Savior and understand God's love for us displayed in Christ Jesus. We're not through, but I've got many more pages, so we'll pick up with this this next Lord's Day. As you leave here, I would ask you, do you know Christ Jesus, and are you pursuing after him? Just enough to say, I'm a Christian. Well, show me. Are you pursuing him? How do you do that? Well, you attend worship. You seek to be obedient. You read the scriptures. You pray. And you strive to keep In mind always, God is ever with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the blessing of the Christian. Let's pray. Our mighty God, our heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the scriptures here. And how, God, they present to us the reality of your love throughout your word, O God. As Asaph came to peace, we pray, Lord, that we would, by your grace, enjoy that same peace Help us, our Lord, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trials, to be encouraged as we recall your love for us in Christ Jesus. Amen.